Thank you, Libby. What a pleasure to be here. I'm very impressed with the crowd. Is this a group that back when you were in college all showed up for your 8 o'clock uh, classes here? <laughs> um, uh, I also want to recognize one person in the crowd, Rebecca Rimel, who is the president and CEO of the Pew Charitable Trust, which is the parent organization of the Pew Research Center. Rebecca and her board had the vision to create the Pew Research Center about a decade ago. I've worked there since we, we began the book, and I hope my presentation today is a culmination of a lot of the work we do there. We are probably best known for our public opinion survey research, but we also do demographic and economic data analysis. We call ourselves a fact tank. Uh, you know, everybody's entitled to his own opinions, but not his own facts. We hope we deliver good facts that help people identify problems and maybe construct solutions. So uh, my talk is going to be about demographic change, and it's going to be about generational equity. Uh, demographic change is a drama in slow motion. It unfolds incrementally, tick by tock, but it transforms societies in fundamental ways. And the America of the early 21st century is undergoing two such dramas at the same time. We are en route to becoming a majority non-white country. At the same time, a record share of us are going gray. Either of these changes by itself would be the most significant demographic story of its era. The fact that they are both happening on top of each other has created generation gaps that have the, that have the potential uh, to create stresses and strains in everything from our families to our finances uh, to our politics to our entitlement programs, indeed, to our social cohesion. It is a very challenging situation. Um, the paradox uh, of demographic change is that even though it happens all around us, it's sometimes hard to see. Uh, and an old letter of mine described demographic change as a story that oozes, it doesn't break. Nobody calls a press conference to announce that we're becoming older or becoming majority non-white. And nobody blows a bugle. But we sometimes as a society have aha moments and this aha moment that I'm about to start with is one that had it occurred in time, I would have led the book with it. I led the book with a different aha moment. We can talk about that later if you wish. This aha moment was uh, four months ago at the Super Bowl. As we all know, in the last few decades, the Super Bowl, in addition to being a great sporting pageant, has become a great advertising pageant. And it is the moment where all the, all the big brands roll out their new ways of appealing to America. Somebody my age has been looking at TV ads and TV ad families all his life, and I sort of know what the rules are. A and one of the rules has been the parents in a TV ad family uh, are supposed to be the same race and the opposite sex. So here we're going to see very snippets. I'm just going to give you about 10 second snippets of ads from three of our best known brands. I think the first one is Chevy. While what it means to be a family hasn't changed, what a family looks like has. This is the new us. And next we have uh, Cheerios. You know how our family has daddy and mommy? And me. Yeah, that's right. Pretty soon, you're going to have a baby brother. She's not. <laughs> and finally, we have uh, Coke. Coke and. Uh... 
So product advertisers are not in the business of making political statements, and they're certainly not in the business of making political enemies, not when they're spending $4 million for 30 seconds before the biggest national audience we have. And they surely knew, each of them surely knew, because they focus group these things to death and they market research these things to death, that if you have images of parents who are uh, opposite race and same sex, and if you have America the Beautiful being sung, and I just showed a snippet in se six or seven different languages, you are going to offend some portion of your customer base. And indeed, uh, there was blowback. Some of you who remember this know that actually the Cheerios commercial was the second, the second round of that. The Cheerios had run an earlier version of that commercial the summer before, it attracted a lot of blowback in the Twitter sphere and in some precincts of the, the, the conservative media. And uh, they, the comment stream on YouTube got so ugly that they eventually uh, put it down. But then six months later, they come back and they say, you know, we're here. And we're here and this is who we're about and this is who, uh, how we want to project ourselves. So what is it that they know about how America is changing? Well, here's one thing they know. Here is, here is a portrait of the country by its racial and ethnic makeup in 1960. We were, our population was 85% white, 10% uh, black, 4% Hispanic. You couldn't count anything else. And here is where we're going. This is a Census Bureau projection uh, by 2060, where we will be 43% white. And we will be much more of a kaleidoscope and a rainbow. And by the way, let, let, let me stop here and say a word about prediction and projection. These are Census Bureau predictions. The future is a tough nut to crack, and predictions, you know, predictions are tough, especially about the future. The one, the one thing that gives uh, me at the Pew Research Center confidence in giving some of these numbers is, to some degree, um, demographics are the future we already know because a lot of the population change is already baked in. And we know who's being born today, and we know what the mortality and the fertility patterns are. So this may not be exact, but this is a pretty good portrait of where we are going. And what is driving uh, this new rainbow that we are becoming? The biggest single driver are the 40 million immigrants who have arrived in this country since 1965. Uh, when we reopened our doors to immigration, having closed them in the 20s, in a backlash against earlier waves of immigration. This is the largest wave in our country's history, but it is, it, it is in fact, the third wave. And it's, let's take a moment uh, to reflect how we got here. We call ourselves a nation of immigrants. We, we, we glory in being a nation of immigrants. Uh, immigration is, is, is never easy. Somebody said we, we, you know, we tend to hate immigrants before we love them and we love the idea of them. But the first immigration wave happens in the middle 19th century, uh, and it is mostly from Western uh, and Northern Europe. It's German. It's Irish. The second uh, th then comes and moves to the South and Eastern Europe, and it's Italians, it's Poles, it's Jews. So you add up these two immigration waves together, and you have a total of 32 million people coming over that 80 or 90-year period. In the modern wave, it's 40 million and counting since 1965. Uh, so in sheer numbers, more now than all before. And by the way, there's a group that I don't show here, which are a group that didn't come uh, uh, on their own steam. They came in shackles. Uh, that was the forced immigration from Africa, and that's about 12 million, just to give you, and that began much earlier and ended earlier. So the modern wave, uh, here is the racial makeup of the modern wave. It is 50% from Latin America, nearly 3 in 10 uh, from Asia, and just 12% European. 
So it's not only replenishing our workforce, but, but it is changing our racial and ethnic complexion. And by the way, in just the last five years, Asians have now overtaken Hispanics as the largest immigrant group, and that is likely to continue. But so, some things don't change. Immigrants are strivers. Immigrants believe in the future. Uh, that's why they came. That's why they come. They tend to have a lot of children. Their, 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 their uh, birth rates are higher than those of the native-born. That's been through, through history. So if you look at what you call, what, what we demographers call immigrant stock, you see this immigration wave is producing a big change, not just because of their own number, but because of the many kids that they have. So there's a phrase called immigrant stock, which is the immigrants and the first gen the children of immigrants. And again, projecting forward to the middle of this century, about 37% of the country will either be immigrants or the children of immigrants. Something on the order of magnitude of 80 to 90% of the growth of the U.S. labor force between now and the middle of the century will be immigrants and the children of immigrants. This is where our future is going. But interestingly, we are going back to a country that we had been for most of our history. Indeed, the middle of the 20th century was not the way America always was. The middle of the 20th century was, in our history, the outlier. As I mentioned before, we had a backlash against immigration. We passed restrictive uh, legislation in the 20s. Then along comes the Great Depression. Along comes World War II. Immigration almost ceases. We're feeling better about ourselves, better about our economy in the 1960s. We open the doors back up, and here is where we're going. Uh, but here's another interesting question. And so the, here is the profile I described of what we're likely to look like uh, by the middle of the century. But it raises an interesting question. Will our old labels keep up with our new marriages? Because something else is going on that's actually quite different, which is uh, the number of people marrying across racial and ethnic lines. So if you go back to 1961, uh, when Barack Obama's parents were married, and for the sake of not starting an argument, let's just stipulate they were in fact married in Hawaii and not Kenya. Um, <laughs> our best guess is that um, that marriage between a black person and a white person that year represented something on the order of magnitude of one-tenth of one percent of all marriages. That marriage was still illegal in 16 uh, states of this, uh, in the United States, and it was, as I think it's fair to say, kind of a gasp-inducing taboo virtually everywhere else. Uh, and in 1960, if you look at marriages across all racial and ethnic lines, just 2.5% of new marriages were, were those of those kinds. Here is the current portrait of marriages across racial and ethnic lines. It has risen steadily over the last half century, uh, and it is a change, again, being driven mostly by the two modern immigrant groups. So of all recent marriages, uh, more than a quarter of Hispanics and Asians who marry marry non-Asians, non-Hispanics. 17% now of blacks marry out, and about 9% of whites. Interesting gender patterns, by the way. Among Asians, the women are nearly three times more likely than the men to, quote, marry out. Among blacks, it goes the other way. The men are merely, merely three times more likely than women to marry out. So there are clearly uh, cultural factors going on here, maybe some economic factors as well. Whites are the group least likely to marry out. It's part because they're the largest group in the largest pool. But because they are still the largest group in the largest pool, of all modern marriages across racial and ethnic lines, 70% involve one spouse uh, who is white. Here's another interesting question. 
what are we going to call the children of these marriages? What are the children of these marriages going to call themselves? Do the labels that we use now, black, Hispanic, white, um, Asian, do, do they, will they make sense? Well, the truth of the matter is we're not even sure what to call the President of the United States. So uh, a year after he was elected, the Pew Research Center asked in a you know, national survey, what do you think of Barack Obama? You think of him mainly as a black person, mainly as a white person? Uh, I'm sorry, mainly as a white person, mainly as mixed race. Those were the two chances we offered. The majority of whites said mainly white. The majority of blacks said mainly mixed race. But significant minorities of each group had it the other way reflecting the fact that our vocabulary really does have trouble keeping up. Barack Obama himself uh, had a chance to declare himself, as all of us did on the 2010 census, and he could have said, I'm black. He could have said, I'm white. He could have said, I'm both black and white. Um, he, chose, uh, he chose to say, I'm black, and he actually got some blowback from people who say, well, why don't you declare all of your bloodlines in this new mixed-race America, about 10 million Americans, declare that they are more than one race. Our guess is that that way underestimates. If you ask the question a different way, not you, you consider yourself to be of many races, but you consider yourself mixed race, we find about 16% of all Americans say that. Obama said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, look, uh, <laughs> you, you're named Barack Obama. You look like me. You grow up in the America of the late 20th century. Who, who are we kidding? I'm a black guy. That's the life I have lived. And I think that that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. Or Barack Obama also describes himself sometimes in a self, sometimes as a mutt. And, and um, one of the things we have known throughout human history is that being mixed race throughout history, throughout cultures, is often very difficult. I happen to have been a newspaper reporter in South Africa 20 years ago. South Africa went to pathological lengths to categorize people by race, and, and one, of the, one of the categories was colored, which is the official mixed-race category. And in terms of having a sense of place, uh, having, feeling a part of it, it always struck me that they had the worst of it. So here are a collection of mutts. All of these people are well-known celebrities, and I could have given you 10 or 20 more, uh, and they are all mixed race of one kind or another. And some of them, it's part of their identity. Some of them, it's not part of their identity. It's just who they are. And it is one sign, you know, most mixed race people, most people don't live the, the lives of celebrities. But who a culture chooses to elevate as its celebrities says something about that culture. And one of the things that is clearly happening around race, we are not becoming post-racial. Racial animus is probably never going to go away. But it is clearly the case, and we see it in the numbers, particularly with the younger generation, that race operates at a very, very different level. And there's a tolerance, there's a comfort that, uh, you know, about race and a, that is quite different. And it's taking us, uh, by, to my mind, and I suspect to most people's mind, uh, to a much better place. Okay, quickly, let's, let's talk about one other, the other big demographic change before I get into some of the generational stuff. And that is we're all getting older. And uh, this, is, this is what's called an age pyramid. And when demographers break down a population, every horizontal bar here represents a five-year age cohort, the share of the population. So the biggest bar is, is the share that are zero to four, 
and then we work our way up, and the smallest bar is the bar 85 and over. And throughout human history, whenever you would break a population down in this manner, you always got a pyramid. So here it was in 1960. If you go back to our country in 1850, still a pyramid. Actually, the lines are a little sharper because fewer people live to be older, but always a pyramid. And now we're coming to 1900 and back to 1960. And now let's take a look at what happens to our age pyramid in the century from the middle of the last century going forward. <laughs> so we got ourselves a rectangle. Um, and it's really, and this is uncharted water in human history. Uh, and you can bring it, you got it. Change the rules a little bit. Uh, you can bring it to a point. I live in the District of Columbia. We're very fond of the Washington Monument. This starts to look like an obelisk. Um, but you've got you to take it all the way up to 100. By the middle of this century, the census tells us there will be about 500,000 uh, people age 100 and over. Um, and uh, the Economist did a story about global aging. This is happening all over the world. It was a great cover. That cover was a billion shades of gray. Um, because the world is getting older, too. And there's a lot to like about this. Uh, this is being driven by two enormous demographic changes that you can see here in, some, in the data, which is life expectancy is going up and fertility is going down. You put those two things together, and, the, and populations are going to get older. So this was, life, this was life expectancy in the U.S. in 1900 at birth, 49. We're up to 79 now. By the middle of this century, we will be at about 84. And there are people, there are scientists working in labs all over the world who are trying to invent the Methuselah drug or, or the little computer chip that we put in the back of our necks and who think, you know, why do we have, you know, we can just go on forever, like a vintage car being taken care of by a good mechanic. Yeah, Woody, Woody, Allen, Woody Allen was quoted as on this subject saying, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. <laughs> uh, and there are some people who think we may get to that day, and given some of the, some of the challenges I'm going to describe in a moment, the finances around that are mind-boggling. Uh, the, 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 the family relationships, on and on you can go. We actually put a question on a, a poll last year on this. We didn't say if you could live forever, but, but we said there was a National Geographic uh, cover story. I think that prompted us to do the poll that had a picture of a newborn, and the, the cut line of the cover was, will this baby live to be 120? And, and there are more and more people who think that's where we're going. And so we asked if you could live to be 120, would you like to? And actually, majority of people said no. Uh, but the majority of people said most other people would like to, or that was their guess anyway. And, and people, people are, have trouble getting their minds around it. They worry. And because we ask questions, what would, what would worry you about this? They worry, frankly, about uh, uh, the, the, the sustainability of the Earth's resources if everybody is living forever. They worry, frankly, that only people with, uh, with assets and wealth would be able to buy themselves good health that late into life. I have a feeling that in our lifetimes, some of these challenges will be upon us. 
the fertility rate is really interesting. So this is the U.S. fertility rate uh, over the course of a little more than 100 years. You see that huge bump in the middle? That's, why, that's the baby boom. That's why they, and it is really striking. You rarely in demographics see that dramatic an up and then a down in that short a period of time. Most people know the up, which was we just won World War II. Feeling good about ourselves, the GIs all came home and they said, let's make whoopee, let's make babies, let's have a great life. And, and, and a lot of that worked out. The, the, down, the fact that the down happened as rapidly is also sort of interesting, and that is when the birth control pill came on the market. Okay, so uh, we are not alone. Uh, in in this, uh, this changing pyramid. In fact, there are countries around the world who are way ahead or behind, of us, behind us on this who face even more demographic challenges than we do. China, with its one-child policy, will, by the middle of the century, not be looking at a, at a rectangle. Again, we'll go back to high school geometry here. We're looking at sort of a top-heavy trapezoid here. That's China. Uh, that's Germany. In Germany, every year for the last 40 years, deaths have exceeded births. And here is the leader, Japan. And Japan has among the lowest birth rates in human history. It has among the greatest advances in human longevity in human history. And frankly, it doesn't cotton to immigrants all that much. Immigration tends to make countries younger. So by, the, by this time, the median age in Japan will be 53, median age in the United States, 41. So Japan, a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, East Asia, particularly the wealthy countries, a lot of Europe, is going is already to places where we're going, and we can see some of the challenges they face. Japan, we have uh, we have a, we have a debt that's 100% of our gross national product, and that's a big problem. They already have a debt that's 200% of their gross national product, because because old people at some point need the energies of young people, and if young people aren't around, things don't work quite as well. So I'm, you saw that bump, the baby boomers. We'll talk about the baby boomers a little more in just a second, but. Uh, the baby boomers were a huge generation because of that surge in birth and increase in fertility. Typical woman then had three kids. Typical woman before or after had two. Uh, they had to build a lot of schools for us. I'm one of them. When we were, you know, when we were just growing up, we made a lot of noise coming of age in the 60s. Well, what's happened to us now? Well, we're getting old. So today, 10,000 baby boomers will turn 65, and tomorrow another 10,000 baby boomers will turn 65, and the next day, and so on, every single day between now and 2030. And when all that pig and a python generation crosses the threshold uh, into old age, crosses the threshold from being taxpayers to being beneficiaries, we suddenly have a social compact between old and young that doesn't work anymore. So if you go back to 1960, the ratio of taxpayers to beneficiaries for Social Security was about five to one, and that worked, and we were able to support generous benefits and increasing generous benefits. Today, we're at about three to one, and by 2030, we're about two to one, and at that point, the math simply doesn't work anymore. And every year, the trustees of the Social Security put out a report, I think their, their, their 2014 report is due out in a few weeks, and they sound an alarm. These are, these are not, Demo they're appointed by Democrats and Republicans. They're designed to be bipartisan. They make a report to Congress and to the President, and they're the numbers crunchers, and every year they put out a red flare, and they say, guys and women, the numbers don't work. And we can tell you with some demographic certainty that 
uh, that Medicare is out of money by the middle of, in about 10 or 13 years and Social Security in 18 years. And at that point, we can't fulfill the promises we've made and we will either have to make drastic cuts or drastic tax increases. And the longer you wait, the more the deeper the hole gets and the greater the burden becomes. This is a big generational challenge. Uh, and I'll talk about that very, uh, more in a minute. But let me now talk briefly about the four living generations that will have to take on this challenge and are a part of this changing America. Let's start with the oldest, sometimes called the silent generation. They're now mostly uh, in their 70s, 80s, and beyond. They're actually our most <clears throat> financially secure generation. When Gallup, Gallup asks this question every year, what, you know, what are your biggest financial worries? And the majority of the American public says, my biggest financial worry is not having enough money for my retirement. The only age group for whom that is not their biggest financial worry are the people already retired. Because by and large, and again, let me stop with a caveat. I'm, I'm going to talk in gross generalizations, and they are some, to some degree supported by attitudinal data, by economic and demographic data, but obviously there are a lot of differences within generations. But as long as you accept the fact that we're in the world of generalizations, this generation had a really great run. Um, you know, they, the, the economy of the 50s and 60s and 70s, as they were in their prime working years, was expanding. The middle class was expanding. Standards of living were going up pretty dramatically. Uh, and and uh, they ran it out. Um, they, they have actually politically, been, <coughs> through most of their lives, been a conservative generation. The, the generation right before them, most of them have passed from the scene sometimes called the greatest generation, they were actually <clears throat> more liberal through most of their voting lives. This group, more of the kind of Eisenhower-era uh, adults, conservative, don't particularly care for government. When Ronald Reagan said government is the problem, not the solution, uh, that struck a chord with this generation. But, boy, they are very protective of the two most biggest and most successful government programs, Social Security and Medicare. <laughs> um, they are... Uh, as secure as they are financially, they are disoriented uh, by the pace of uh, racial and ethnic change uh, and certainly by the pace of, uh, of technological change. So, you know, they look at the America today and they sort of say, ooh, I, I, did I, I'm not sure I signed up for this. And, and you know, and, and I think that, that, you know, that happens. We're a society that is always changing, and I think that disorientation is probably not unusual throughout our history. I do think that the overlapping uh, kinds of changes uh, are, have been particularly tough. Next generation down are the boomers, and by the way, uh, totally worthless bonus points go to people who recognize the allegedly iconic uh, uh, movies that represent it. So I already talked about a little bit about, about the boomers. Just to talk a little bit about their coming-of-age years, so the 60s, Famous, famous at the time, remembered famous, the counterculture generation, and it was the women's rights, and it was civil rights, and it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was sort of a middle finger pointed at the establishment, and it was sort of a sense of our parents and grandparents have kind of screwed everything up, and thank God we're here to make it all right. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there was a whiff, you know, in their grievance against the culture, they, uh, there was a whiff of generation war, never trust anybody over 30 was a placard that uh, the, the people carried as they occupied the dean's office, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what I would say about the, the, that generation, however, is that that memory and that reality captured some, but by no means all of that generation. And it is a little-known political fact, but I'm going to deliver it to you right now. In 1972, 
It was the first year that uh, boomers were old enough to vote. It was the first year that the voting age actually came down from 21 to 18. And more baby boomers that year voted for Richard Nixon than voted for his anti-war challenger, uh, George McGovern. And when we asked boomers today, and we asked this question of all adults, over the course of your lifetimes, would you say you've gotten more liberal, more conservative, or you haven't changed? A majority of boomers say, actually, I've gotten more conservative. Only about a third say I've gotten more liberal, and the rest I haven't changed. So it has actually politically been a more complex generation than we tend to remember, remember it. Uh, a lot of the countercultural stuff, we, we, heard about, uh, <laughs> we heard about marijuana legalization, and there's a fascinating chart. Uh, uh, the, the country is more accepting of marijuana legalization. It's reflected in some of the changing laws. And if you look at the, the boomers on that subject over the course of their lifetimes, you see a U-shape. And we love U-shapes. Things go down, things go up. Say, what's going on there? Well, the boomers were all for marijuana back when they were in their teens and early 20s. Then they have kids. Kids are at home. Not such a good idea. Kids are out of the house, and we're back. <laughs> So next down are the so-called Gen Xers. Um, we put out a report. We call them uh, America's neglected middle child. Uh, they have actually, from, from commentators and, 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 and would-be pulse takers like me, they actually do get sort of overlooked. They're a really interesting generation. Uh, they came of age in the Reagan era. The notion that government, you know, is not to be trusted, uh, they accepted. The other institution that they were not that trusting of was, was a little old thing called marriage. Uh, they are the children of the divorce revolution. Divorce in this country spiked in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's leveled off since then. And unlike, as we'll discover in a minute, the millennials, they, they you know, you remember the phrase latchkey children, the parenting norms under which they were raised, where they were sort of a little bit of an afterthought, and yeah, you're going to get home to an empty house at three, and you know, you'll figure it out. They are a we'll figure it out generation. They're kind of savvy, entrepreneurial. The world's not giving you anything. You've got to take what you can get. So uh, there, there's, a, uh, there's an interesting divide on some of their attitudes towards government and economic policies, more conservative, on some of the racial and cultural change. Uh, generally speaking, they're much more comfortable. They look a lot more like their, their younger brothers and sisters. Um, and let's get now to the millennials, uh, because they are our biggest generation. By the time we can count all of them, they'll be our biggest generation. And in many ways, they are our most distinctive generation. Perhaps it's the boomers, perhaps, ever. So uh, we define millennials. And again, all these boundaries are a little bit of a conceit in the idea that if you're born one year, you're this. And you're born the next year, you're that. Just uh, take it for what it is. Um, uh, they are, let, 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 where, where should I start with them? Let, let me start with their political profile. Uh, they are our most liberal and democratic voting generation that we have seen in the 50 years we have tracked this. So the two elections, that, uh, the two Obama elections, they were a very big and important part uh, of, of his victories. Uh, if, if no millennials had voted, we'd be in year two of the Romney administration. Um, but, but uh, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to their, their technological. Uh, let me move to something that's a little bit hard to read, but uh, it's very distinctive about this generation. So these are, these are, we're looking at the years 2007 to 2014. We're tracking the same age cohort over seven years. 
And we ask, we ask very standard questions of all people. You consider your political, you consider yourself Democrat, Republican, or independent. So look at, and millennials are the, dark, the, the darkest line there. And look where they are on, I consider myself independent. We've never seen an age cohort, half of whom choose not to identify with either political party. That in itself is sort of interesting, and it's particularly interesting because we know how they vote, and they vote Democratic, uh, and they have a set of values, political and social values that are very con you know, comfortable with the Democratic Party. So there's something about not wanting to attach to an institution that's going on here, and we, we, we know that because we ask the same question about religion. What do you consider yourself? Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Hindu, Muslim. And again, we've never seen a generation that is, you know, three in ten say nothing in particular. It doesn't mean they're agnostic or atheist. Some of them are. What it really means is, no, I don't, I don't choose to identify or affiliate with an established institution. So that seems to be an important ingredient of how they are navigating the world. And then there's one other social institution that, at least so far, they are unmoored from. And that is a little old 5,000-year institution called marriage. So here we are looking at the share of 18 to 32-year-olds married at that stage of the life cycle. So only one quarter of millennials are married. And if you go back to their parents, up to their parents, or their grandparents' generation, you're at half or you're at two-thirds. This is an enormous change. 5,000-year-old institutions don't usually change this much in the blink of an eye. If you take a snapshot of the American adult public in 1960, 72% of all adults over the age of 18 were married. Today, 51% of all adults over the age of 18 are married. Uh, this is happening all over the world. Uh, there's a lot going on here. It could be the subject of, a, of another discussion entirely. Uh, but to stay with millennials, we ask those who are not married, how come? Why not? And, uh, and do you want to get married? And 7 in 10 say, yes, I want to get married. And then we say, well, what's keeping you back? And we have a whole lot of response categories. But what they add up to, and again, I'm taking some liberties and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, and summarizing is, me get married? Who are you kidding? You know, I don't have a job. You know, uh, you know I, I don't have a career. I'm still living in my childhood bedroom. Who the hell would want to marry me? Uh, or, or there's nobody out there for those same reasons. So at the, you know, there is clearly an economic basis. And, and people think in order to be a good spouse, you need to be a good provider. And even though people have, we have moved to a place in our society where the egalitarian marriage, uh, uh, husband and wife, uh, you know, both work and share duties for raising the kids and doing the housework. People say, you know, what do we like, the old Aziad Harriet marriage or the, the modern egalitarian marriage? 70, 80% say modern egalitarian. That, that's where we are in our norms and in our minds. But then when we drill down a little bit and we say, well, in order to be a good spouse, uh, you know, does, a, does a prospective husband need to have a, a, a job and be a good, good provider? 70, 80% say yes. What about a wife? 20, 30% say yes. Yeah, how important is it for a father to be home, you know, uh, helping to raise the kids? 20, 30%. How important is it for a mother? 70, 80%. So we're a little bit betwixt and between in terms of our, our gender views of marriage, and that's complicating things. But at the end of the day, the driver here is clearly economic, and the drop-off in marriage has collapsed. The marriage has collapsed at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So you see it 
uh, you know, it's collapsed among people who haven't gone beyond high school. It's collapsed uh, in communities of color. 50 years ago, 60% of African-American adults were married. Today, 30% of African-American adults are married. And the, 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 from a policy point of view, the challenge here is marriage for 5,000 years has been, at the end of the day, an economic arrangement. And it has been a very successful economic arrangement because two can live more cheaply than one, and two can divide labor, and, and it has worked, and it has adapted to all sorts of cultures. So that's a very important question. So if they don't get married, if they, if they don't affiliate with a, with, a, with a religion, with a political party, how do they navigate the world? Well, here's how they navigate the world. So here... So we all now hold these little things in our hands, and uh, to somebody my age, it is absolutely astonishing that with three clicks, I can basically access the sum of all human knowledge. And frankly, if it takes me the third click, I'm saying, what the hell is taking so long? <laughs> but, but to somebody their age, it is, it, it's not astonishing, it is the only world they have ever known, and it is not only their indispensable platform for information acquisition, it is their indispensable platform for social relationships and for affiliation and for building tribes. Um, <coughs> somebody more clever than me described millennials as the first modern pre-Copernican generation, and for, because the universe really can revolve around them because, <laughs> because they can find their tribe and they can place themselves at the middle of their tribe. And then, of course, when they do that, they take pictures of themselves and, and, and they share them with people. And <clears throat> Selfie, uh, which got a big, uh, big sort of jolt in the popular culture three or four months ago at the Oscars with Ellen DeGeneres, with, you know, it had achieved enough ca cultural cachet last year that it was named the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year of 2013. So early this year, but just before the Oscar night, we asked Americans of all ages, have you ever taken a selfie? And here's what we got. And we also asked, do you know what a selfie is? And a majority of silence didn't have a clue what a selfie was. <laughs> so uh, there, is, there is an offline analog to the look-at-me uh, instincts that we see from selfies, and that is tattoos. Uh, four in ten millennials have tattoos, and of those who have them, many have multiple tattoos. So they, they have gotten the rap uh, for being a narcissistic look-at-me generation. I, speaking as a boomer, I say no boomer has any right to declare any other generation narcissistic. Um, <laughs> We have been expecting our own navels, you know, for well on 50 years now. <laughs> and, and, and I also think that um, what they are are creatures of the technology, and, you know, the environment that they have grown up in. Here's one more really interesting finding about <clears throat> millennials. And I, I see I'm going over time here, but uh, I'll keep talking. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, we know that millennials and adults of all ages uh, over many years have lost trust in, in the basic institutions of society, and we kind of, I think we all kind of know why, and I think that makes a lot of sense. This is a slightly different question. This is about trust in other people. And the question is, uh, you know, generally speaking, would you say most people can be trusted or you can't be too careful when dealing with other people? 
And here are the four generations, and we track them over the, the 20 or 30 years that we and others have been asking this question. We can only do about the last six or seven years with millennials because only enough we're old enough for us to get to them. But this is, this is really interesting. Uh, this is a generation that is coming of age not trusting other people. And I don't, I don't know how to explain this. I will offer up two or three theories. The, the, most, the, the most supportable uh, uh, with numbers is, is we'll get to their economic circumstances in a while. Uh, they, are, they are very challenged economically. They are also our most non-white generation. They are the transition generation from the America we talked about that's going to be majority non-white. About 43% of millennials are non-white. And what social scientists will tell you is that people who feel vulnerable in a society for whatever reason, and minorities and people at the lower end of the economic scale tend to be, feel vulnerable, tend to be less trusting because they are less well fortified to deal with the consequences of misplaced trust. So that is one likely explanation. A second possible explanation is that they navigate so much of the world online and through, so, uh, through social networks. And you know what? Bulletin. Turns out not everybody is who they say they are online. And, and these kids are smart enough to sort of know that and sort of factor that in. And then finally, they may be less trusting because of the parenting norms. I mentioned that the older, the extras were sort of uh, latchkey kids, and they were kind of an afterthought, it seemed, culturally. These kids are not a cultural afterthought. These kids have helicopter parents, and you, you know about them. Maybe some of you are them. Um, uh, they, are, it, they have been raised under not only everybody gets a trophy, you're very precious, you're very special, and that has led to a kind of an optimism about them that is actually, I think, a saving grace, but also a, 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 you need to be protected we live in a world of global terror. We live in a world of Columbine and Newtown and horrible things happening. And the normally protective, I think, parent, parental instincts have been in overdrive. So the message is be wary, be careful. I, my, my own sense is that uh, from other data I have, I won't go into, that this, this distrust is more a wariness than an alienation. I think it's, it's probably the case that the boomers were more alienated. They really thought society had screwed up. These kids are not alienated. Uh, and they're not aggrieved. They are aspirational, uh, but, but, a little bit, uh, but a little bit wary. Uh, a, 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 few more, a few more slides, and then I'm, I hope we'll open it up to questions. So I, I could show you 100 of these slides that just shows how different the generations are and how most of the differences sort of march through in sort of predictable ways. So here, for example, is how comfortable uh, folks are with interracial marriages, uh, same-sex marriage. I could show you the same slides on that. Um, here, here is a classic question to measure whether you think a government is a good or a bad thing in life, you know, in, in a society. Millennials are much more comfortable with the idea government is actually a big government is a good thing. We want its services. We want its protections. Here's a fascinating one. And again, I could show you 10 slides. Uh, this is a little bit of, of a cheat because a lot of this is life cycle. So, you know, people, your, your net worth, everything you own minus everything you owe, People tends to acquire more as they get older. But if I showed you this exact same slide 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, these gaps would not have been nearly as large. <clears throat> the story of income and wealth inequality has gained a lot of currency, I think rightly so in recent years because the numbers show it. And we, we tend now to tell the story in terms of, in terms of just rich and poor. Uh, but one way to tell the story is that older folks 
are relatively well-to-do. Younger folks are much less well-to-do and having a much, much harder time getting started. So you look at that. You look at income. You, you, you look at the employment. You look at unemployment. You look at debt. You look at all the indicators, and you compare today's young adults with their parents and grandparents' generation when they were the same age, and it is the case that this is the, and you do it apples to apples, and you correct for inflation, and you try to make it, it is the case that this is the first generation in modern history, and perhaps in history, that is starting out in life in worse shape than their parents' and grandparents' generation. Now, we don't know how that story ends. The oldest of them are still in their 30s, but it, it, it is something um, um, to think and to worry about. Here is, um, uh, this is, this is a little bit of a tough slide to see, but we have something we have the, uh, the orange line here is how the, the democratic vote cast by young adults the green line is the democratic vote cast by old adults the point of this line is that for most of the 80s 90s and early aughts there was no difference the <coughs> the famous bush gore coin uh, cost election of, of the year 2000 50 50 among young 50 50 among old there was no difference in the last three elections, particularly the two Barack Obama elections, you have a huge gap opening up. So you have now a world where young and old don't look alike, they don't think alike, and they don't vote alike. And this is a reality at a moment in our history where we do have to renegotiate the social compact between young and old. As I mentioned earlier, the numbers don't work anymore. And these kids are getting off to a very rough start economically. And they're getting a sort of a, a double whammy because uh, Social Security and Medicare, which are the most popular and successful programs this country has ever enacted. Ninety, you ask the American public, are these, are these programs good for the country? Ninety percent of the public says yes. We take a lot of surveys. We don't see a lot of 90s. We sometimes joke around the office, yes, people, does your mother love you? We're not sure we get a 90. <laughs> The, the, these programs are popular because they work. Without Social Security and Medicare, uh, nearly half of uh, uh, older Americans would be poor. Because of Social Security and Medicare, just 10% of older Americans are poor. When those programs were enacted, older Americans were by far the poorest group in America. Today, it's younger Americans and their children who are by far the poorest group in America. And, the, and, and what the young now face is sort of a double whammy with these programs. They're paying into the programs. They like the programs. They love the fact that grandma's in good shape. A lot of them benefit from the fact that grandma and grandpa are in good shape with tuition and all the rest. Uh, but uh, they're, they're facing a double whammy of paying into programs that will not U.S. The US kids today, will Social Security be there for you? And 50% say not at all. Another 40% say at reduced levels, just 6% expect it to be there at current levels. And, the, and they're right unless we make some changes. And the longer we wait, the deeper the hole we come. So my final, so what's interesting to me is given all of that, we do seem poised for a, the, the potential for a generational rift. How do we renegotiate the compact when old and young don't look, think, and vote alike? My, my closing uh, grace note is at least so far, uh, you know, war needs combatants, and neither young nor old is spoiling for a fight here. Part of it is that we are living more interdependently than ever before. We're going to come out with a report next week that 58 million Americans now, double the number 30 years ago, 58 million Americans, 18% of the population, live in multi-generational family households. This is a profound change. It's, um, 
A lot of it is, is, is a reaction to economic circumstances. A lot of it is those 25- and 30-year-olds who, who, who can't get started. So they've either never left home or boomerang back, and the refrigerator is stocked, and you don't have to put coins in the washing machine. And, you know, and what's interesting to us is that um, uh, you know, we sort of looked, is there some stigma here? Is, is there some sense of, of, of failure to launch and all the rest? Is there tension in those households? We found very little of it. You know, my sense is that these young adults have sort of seamlessly migrated from being their parents' children to, the, to being their parents' roommates, and everybody is sort of, everybody is sort of cool with that. I, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pretend it's all hunky-dory, but, but it, 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 so when we, when we ask, so when we ask people, you know, every society has conflicts between different groups. How much conflict do you see between the following groups? So we, we got about a 30% saying uh, young and old, but boy, we got we got a lot more saying they see conflicts between other groups. So the, the hope here is, is that we can take that same, those same generational good vibrations that clearly exist today in the, in the realm that is most important to everybody, which is their family lives, and apply them to the very, very difficult challenges in our public life. You know, we, you know, uh, somebody said a society grows great uh, when old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never sit in. One of the reasons that this country has always been great is as a country, in our public lives, in our private lives, in our corporate and our business lives, we have believed in investing in the future. So whether it's the Intercontinental Railroad, whether it's the Interstate Highway System, whether it's the Internet, whether it's the Erie Canal, whether it's the Panama Canal, whether it's the polio vaccine, whether it's land-grant colleges, whether it's a GI Bill, we have done big things to make life better for the next generation. Because I think, I think human beings are hardwired to want things to be better for the next generation. And, and one of the hopes here is this rising group of boomers who is heading into old age in relatively good health and maybe wanting a second act. Uh, and they certainly, we know this certainly, they certainly want to make life better for their own kids uh, and their own grandkids. The question is, can you tap that energy, that harness that ingenuity, and help them get to a place where they're going to help it make better for everybody's kids, even kids who look and, and think uh, differently from them? That is the challenge. We know at the moment we have a gridlocked and toxic political system that is simply unable to deal with that challenge and is running away from it, only making the problem worse. The next and final hope is that these kids, this rising generation, who are our future workforce, who are our future voters, will, will, will stake a claim to this conversation, not do so in a finger-pointing way, do so in the kind of consensual way, the aspirational way that represents the best of our values, and we will have a different kind of politics. I, my sense is that, uh, that's not just my sense, I know the numbers, Americans of all ages are totally fed up with Washington for all the understandable reasons. It, it would be great to think that this next presidential campaign, we sort of start to break the fever, start to have a different kind of conversation, start to confront some of these issues, and start to invest in our future. Thank you very much. So like, like a good Washington figure, I filibustered my way through the question. What, do we have, we have a, a, few, a few minutes for questions? Five minutes for questions, and, and there's a microphone, and I see a woman in the back with her hand up. Uh, 
Microphone is on its way. Sorry, thank you. Um, oh, is, is the microphone working? All right, thank you. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much for your talk today. So question with regard to millennials in the uh, workforce. Yeah. So has your research looked at millennials' expectations? Um, so two examples I can think of. Um, are they potentially, despite their economic difficulties, are they potentially a little less motivated by money, a little more motivated by, say, having the right technology to work with, having more flexible hours versus perhaps we were? Um, and then my second question is, are they less likely to be uh, loyal to a company based on the fact that the companies are now less loyal to them? So anything around that would De be great. Definitely yes to the latter. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. I did a presentation at NPR uh, a month or two ago, and they gathered all the millennials around the table, and it turned into a focus group. NPR is a great place to work, a, a very successful journalistic enterprise, and I asked all these kids in their 20s, where are you going to be in five years? And they all said, not here. And, 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 and it didn't have anything to do with what they thought about NPR. It had everything to do with the world that they see, which is a world that you better take care of yourself, build your own skills, get your own Twitter feed, build your own brand, because the world changes really fast. In terms of expectations and aspirations, I will tell you, uh, I, I, you know, the thing I find most striking about millennials is that uh, millennial women are more career-oriented than millennial men. Uh, we certainly see that in the share who go to college. We're now nearly 60% of undergraduates are women. You go back 20, 30 years, it was exactly the reverse. Uh, in terms of what's important in your life, when we ask those kinds of questions, what are your life priorities? More young women than, more, than young men say it's important to be successful in a high-paying career. I think some of that has to do with the marriage market that they see around them, and they say to themselves, let me, let me get myself an, uh, an economic foundation rather than 40, 50 years ago. Let me get my MRS. So I, I think in some ways uh, the, men, the men in this new world are struggling, particularly the men who don't go beyond high school where the, those jobs aren't there. So um, anyway, those are a few thoughts. There was a woman. Yes. Um, my question concerns inheritance. When, what do you think is going to happen? Because when the older generation has all the money and they look differently from the younger generation. Where does their money go when they die? It's a great question and the answer is a lot of the money is already filtering down to within families uh, and uh, you know you can't take it with you uh, and um, you know the compact throughout all of human history the, the intergenerational compact in families has been very simple. I take care of it when you when you're young so you take care of me when I'm old. That's why we have children, for goodness sake. What, 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 what's interesting is that the you take care of me when I'm old has moved up and up and up. So there, there are sociologists who study this, and they look at transfers of money and time. By my transfers, I'm, time I mean support. You spend time helping out an aging parent, or a parent spends time nannying for a grandchild, or all of the permutations of that. I... I until, again, at the median, you know, we're recognizing families or every family is different, but at the median, there is more transfer downstream within families up till the elderly adult is 80 than upstream. Only at the very last stages of the life do the transfers start to tilt in the other direction. And frankly, the, the tilt goes towards health, you know, uh, more than money, because all the money is parked at the top now. Now, so that money will work its way down. 
it sometimes works its way down while the older adult is still living, and, and you help the, the, the child buy a house, you help the grandchild you know, with tuition and all the rest. But unfortunately, from a societal point of view, what those transfers tend to do is increase rather than reduce income inequality. So those lucky enough to be in families, I mean, we think of ourselves as a, as a society that's fluid and a society with a great deal of mobility, and the sad truth is that if you want to be rich in America today, lesson number one is choose your parents wisely because, <laughs> because the people who are rich tend to come from families who start out rich. We, Americans don't like to, that's not a pleasant fact. It is a reality. It is a reality that if you start at the bottom socioeconomically in this country, you have a less of a chance of rising to the middle of the top than in most of Europe, than in Canada, than in other places. And that's part of this notion of, wait a minute, this isn't America. This isn't who we are. And this, you know, uh, so we, we need to find ways to, A, tell this story, and B, to capture the notion that our fortunes are braided together and the well-being of your child and somebody else's child uh, is really, at the end of the day, the well-being of the whole country. Right back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, we'll give you a good price. <laughs> I, Sir. Well, what's the impact on education? You can do anything with yeah. education. Yeah, yeah. I have a company in Silicon Valley, and we have nine engineers, and six of them are from outside the United States, and I think only two were educated. They all have PhDs and masters. So uh, here's a great factoid. Uh, of the 20... Uh, biggest and uh, by market cap technology companies in this country, all the names you would be familiar with, uh, Facebook, Google, you know, Oracle, um, Microsoft, what share were founded by immigrants or the children of immigrants? And the answer is 75%. So, so the, the modern immigration stream is at all levels it is replenish, you know, it is doing wonders for us. Again, immigration is always complicated. We have a quarter of our immigrants are here illegally. It's a messy, complicated problem. I don't want to paper it over. But boy, are we winners because of who comes here and who wants to come here. And one, one uh, different topic, but, but one of the things that's happened to our workforce is it's begun to look like an hourglass. There is opportunity and there is energy at the high end in Silicon Valley. There is always a need at the lower end. You know, we need, we need farm workers. We need chambermaids. We need meat packers and all the rest. And it, you know, our, our modern immigration streams are feeding both of those things, and we're very lucky to have both. The danger is the, the jobs in the middle are disappearing, and we're a big heterogeneous society. We're very good at bringing people in and making them American and making America them. Uh, but one of, the, one of the things that's always worked, one of the reasons it's always worked is a big, sprawling middle class with lots of on-ramps from below. So, so uh, I, I realize I'm not, uh, let me get back to education. I'm not an expert on education. But here, here's my sensibility about education that I think we're beginning to grapple with. You go back 20, 30, 40 years, and we used to worry about big high school dropout rates. We're actually doing much better. We're at least getting almost everybody through high school. And beyond that, this is a surprising fact to a lot of people. In 2012, the last year for which we have data, you look at high school graduates that year, the, a higher share of Hispanics than whites went on to higher education. Now, that is the good news because Hispanic dropout rates have been a scourge for decades. 
The bad news is, with Hispanics and also with blacks, uh, the dropout occurs, often occurs, when they get uh, to community college or college. And, and even worse, they're sometimes paying a lot of money and they're, they're leaving with a lot of debt and they're not getting the credential. So I'm not an expert on this, uh, but I do think that, that we've solved some of the education riddles, but in other ways we're, we haven't stepped up to the 21st century. One, one more question. Oh, well. She's right here. All right, but you had one more. So in a lot of the generational study data, the millennials ends at 2000 and Gen Y begins. And I know, I'm just wondering if you have any preliminary data on Gen Y and if you can give a snapshot of the trends and attitudes. When you say Gen Y, you mean the young, younger than millennials? Well, 2000, born in 2000 and beyond. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, at that point, we're dealing with kids who are 12, 13, 14. They probably are different. Uh, I, I've been, you know, I and my colleagues are reluctant to try to draw too much, to say too much about them because, frankly, what do they know about, you know, uh, uh, you know th th their worldview is still, is still forming. Um, I actually had, as, as part of my book tour, I had a little uh, five minutes with John Stewart, and we got into a little conversation, and he said, what are we going to call you know, these kids? And I said, I don't know, but we, we decided to try to have a contest. Uh, so I've, I, a lot of names have floated around. Uh, one that I like a lot is the mosaics. I, I do, you know, uh, there, are, there are a lot of potential ways of, of describing them by their technology uses as well, although, frankly, I have a feeling we don't have a clue what their technology uses is going to be, you know, as they go in their 20s and 30s, because we don't have a clue what those technologies are going to look like. But we do have a clue about, uh, about their racial and ethnic identity. And, and, and uh, let, me, let me end on this, on this note. And, and the, I, I do like the, 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 the metaphor of mosaic or rainbow uh, or kaleidoscope. Again, thinking about our history and thinking about we are a place where people come from all over. Uh, there, there used to be, in, in much of the 20th century, a kind of an assimilationist model. You come, you become American, you kind of all melt together in a big melting pot. That's the way it works. Well, the model is clearly different in the 21st century. And it is not that they don't want to become American. If you look at the values and the aspirations and what we think of as traditional American values, you know who has it more than anybody else? It's the immigrants. Uh, and, but they don't want to, and they don't feel the need to, give up their identity and to some degree their language. So the America of the 21st century will be a mosaic. And I would love to say it will be a beautiful mosaic. And it, it will make a very dramatic picture, but not by each of the individual pieces losing its distinctiveness. And, and that, it seems to me, is the most hopeful story. In a, we are the world. Uh, and, if, and we're pretty good at that. And if we can get some of these other things right, there's no reason why we can't have a great 21st century. So go team. <laughs>